is Wednesday. It's February 21st, 2024, and it's 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, I'm John Williams. This is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Thanks for finding us. Share us with your friends and listen to highlights of the Mincing Rascals this Saturday night at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio. That's where you can find me weekdays from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can read my book, The New Chicago Way, Lessons from Other Big Cities. I'm Kate Plies, former Chicago reporter and columnist, uh, now writing the Chicago history website, Roseland Chicago, 1972. I'm Marge Halperin, former reporter and uh, current fill-in host on WCPT Radio, if I'm allowed to say something else. You'll hear me next Saturday I'm, uh, from 1 to 4. And a community activist with the new uh, group, Formed out of necessity, as you'll see in a second, uh, one community near south. <laughs> I bet I know what that's about. Uh, and I'm Eric Zorn, the Picayune Sentinel editor and publisher and sole writer. I'm reporting to you from the uh, Picayune Sentinel's Oaxaca, Mexico Bureau, where I'm on a working vacation. Is that live video behind you, Eric? It's not live. It's a pre-recorded video. You'll see the same people walking. <laughs> We're watching on, on Zoom, and it's a sunny locale there with people walking by. It's a, it's a pretty picture. Are you having a good time down there? Yeah, it's beautiful down here. Um, and uh, we we come, we do these working vacations every every February. And uh, my wife is working. She's over across the room editing. You don't rue yeah, the I fact mean, that it's uh, 60 degrees in Kenosha today I, and 70 next week in Chicago? I, I, you know, well, you know, these weather forecasts from, from Chicago, I've been keeping my eye on the weather in Chicago, obviously, and um, it's going to be, what, 60-some degrees next Monday also? It's going to yeah. be a little bit of a cold snap and back to sleep. I mean, it, it, it's kind of great, but it's also scary. I mean, that these kind of temperature fluctuations are ominous, it seems to me, that uh, this is not just like an early spring. This is... It's a harbinger of something, I think. Well, I don't think it's a harbinger. I think it is. I opened the show today on the radio talking about this. I said, you know, great for us, not so good for our grandkids. But I also just had the feeling like we're taking something that isn't ours. When it's 70 degrees next Tuesday in Chicago, it feels like I'm stealing something from my kids and grandkids. It is. It's 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 terrible for for all the the pollinators, especially the various plants come up at the wrong times yeah. and then the insects are here when or not here when they're supposed to be feeding on what's supposed to be there so it's 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 really bad i feel that it's a dystopian time period if it's if it's warm when there are no leaves out <laughs> something's the, wrong the two things do not go together <laughs> and it's strange yeah. And, yeah and what i've noticed with the weather people on tv is when there's a bad storm, be it rainstorms in California or really bad snowstorms across the country, they're very quick to tell us that it is a sign of global warming. But then it's so strange. Then we get this weather, which is clearly not right and not good, but they're all happy about it. And and, and the whole team talks about it between themselves, how wonderful it is. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not. And John, you know, the kids and grandkids all over the world are aware of what we're taking from them. And that's why some of the leading activists globally for climate reform are youth. Well, it's um, interesting that the city of Chicago announced this week that they're going to be suing five major oil companies Mm -hmm. for climate change, which we'll get into in just a little bit. Speaking of Chicago, let's start here. The owner of the White Sox wants to move his team to the South Loop, and everyone thought that was a great idea. We'll get to you in a second, Marge. As long as we didn't have to subsidize this billionaire again. Yesterday, Jerry Reinsdorf was in Springfield, and the reporting is that he's looking for as much as a billion in taxpayer dollars. It's not clear how that would materialize, but one way to get almost half of it would reportedly be to create a special tax zone around the stadium, and those proceeds would go to the White Sox, which made me think, I want a special tax zone. An even larger piece of the pie, one more easily lobbied for, is to divert future hotel tax revenues. That's a tax already in place, so no one would see any difference if we would just agree to give him that money. What do you think of either the team moving a little further north or the effort to get taxpayers to help out? I don't know that it's a bad location for the Sox or a bad idea to move. I'm concerned about the plan 
for the existing stadium and the community of Bridgeport that depends so heavily on the Sox being there. Um, there are a lot of questions to be answered. I think we've talked about that more than once on this cast. But what I'm really firmly opposed to is this use of public financing. Um, it's a it's a three-card Monty plan, by the way. So he's talking about basically give me a billion dollars and I'll pay off your existing debt on my current stadium as well as the Soldier Field Bears renovation. And then I'll keep the rest and then give me tax money also through this overlay and through the 2% for an extra 20 years. So we're already diverting 2% of our hotel tax to the Sports Finance Authority, but it ends in, it's supposed to end in 34, in 10 years. He wants 30 years worth of revenue. And then he says, and you won't have to pay any new taxes. Well, yes, we will. We'll pay two, 20 years of that 2%, million here, million there, adds up to real money, as we know. Um, but more than that, there is not a study of dozens that are out there that says that this is a good investment for the public. I spent about 15 minutes I, today just gathering a couple of the highlights. I didn't have time to gather all of them. My favorite is uh, uh, a guy who wrote a book, Field of Schemes. And uh, he, he says the payback, he studied stadium deals for 40 years. Uh, Neil DeMoss is his name. Payback is somewhere between absolutely nothing and extraordinarily little. The Brookings Institutes is the problem with those inflated economic impact numbers yeah. that they put out there yeah. is that they confuse gross and net economic effects. Now, this is what we saw with NASCAR uh, and the NASCAR deal one and two. When they say it brings in all this money to the city on a 4th of July weekend, they didn't subtract out the money that always comes into us on a 4th of July weekend. The number of the hotel occupancy was not compared to a typical 4th of July weekend. And so we're like, whoa, 65% occupancy. This is great for Chicago. Well, you know, what's the typical 4th of July? And those people who usually come in stayed home. The Facts are clear. Last week, I wasn't on, but um, Brandon Pope brought in the MacArthur study. One after another that shows it is not a good investment. The economic impact figures are fake. How could they know? They're trumped up and created by the guy who wants our billion dollars. And we're shuffling around our money from one place to another, from one pocket to another, and we're not putting any of it into the communities in Chicago and around the state that really need the investment. That's the crime of it all. Why do we keep putting money in the pockets of private developers while promising giving lip service to helping disinvested communities? Right. I think it's interesting also that we have yet to pay off the soldier field renovation, which was in the early 2000s, and we've yet to pay off guaranteed rate field, the, the new Comiskey Park. And Reinsdorf wants to consolidate all those debts and, as you say, extend the, the hotel motel tax. And I wanted to ask Austin, I know, uh, I, I believe that we have the highest hotel motel tax in the country. Is that right? You, you compare uh, cities. Among major cities, I think we're the highest. We also weirdly have the most, the highest number of publicly financed hotel rooms of any city in the nation. What is that? Meaning, uh, so for example, at McCormick Place, you know, the arena there, that came with a brand new big hotel that was also publicly financed. And that has a bunch of rooms there. And the comparison is apt between convention center follies and stadium follies. It's like people behind closed doors, they come up with these economic impact studies that have these big gaudy numbers, and they never answer the key question, which Marge is bringing up, which is compared to what? Compared to what? $65 million, you know, whatever. We get $100 billion in economic activity by putting this money in compared to what? And if this is such a great economic opportunity and the benefits are so large, you would think that private money should be able to flow in. The fact that, they're, that, that they can only pencil out the numbers with public money tells you everything you need to know about deals like this. You described it as a new tax marge or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But if it's a continuation of a tax that none of us would have to pay. Uh, I don't know where the breaking point is for businesses to not come to Chicago, but you can tax hotel rooms all you want. 
I've got a house. Or I've got a condo. I don't. I don't need. So what do I care, right? So I think it's a very easy tax to sell to people. Well, the question is, what are we going to do with the money? If you could easily tax hotels, why don't we use that money for the homeless and reduce the mansion tax? If everybody's so upset about that, we need money in this city. We have some ambitious plans and some very serious needs. So yeah, if that's an easy tax to levy, let's use it for the city's top priority. Instead, we let a billionaire come to us and say, this is now your top priority. You have to give it to me. They're convoluted ways to plan city revenue for the good of a private owner. Well, that's not Jerry. But Jerry Reinsdorf's job isn't to help Chicago be a better place. Jerry Reinsdorf's job is to make Jerry Reinsdorf richer. And you trot out those pretty sketches you trot out those pretty sketches. This is how I was sold on a casino in town. And you go, well, I want one of those. And the next thing you know. That's how all, all these mega projects get pitched. It's like you get a little taste and then it's like, ah, oh, we need a bunch of money for this, right? And, and the key problem is we should have development like this that is naturally occurring. And Chicago sees too little of that. And it's partially because our business climate is so bad. We should have people coming to the city to invest tons of money to make that stuff without their handout for a public subsidy or a break. But increasingly for large projects, it's like that is the expectation. And that's the political culture here is that, hey, I'm going to give you something Mm -hmm. as a city, so I better get something back. I wonder if this is him hedging his bets then. If it was such a great economic deal, the private sector should own it. Maybe he's telling you that he's not sure this is such a great economic deal. Although I don't know how you fail in that location. I mean, you don't have to attract businesses and hotels. They're right there. And Kate's kind of rolling her eyes because she hates to see the White Sox leave the South Side. That That is definitely foremost in my mind. <laughs> the fact that we are still paying for that horrible replacement for Comiskey Park. I mean, I would take the old Comiskey Park over what's there right now any day. But the idea that he and the Bears so comfortable coming back for more when the old places aren't even paid off yet. There's just no shame in that, is there? There's no shame. (laughs) Yes, there's just there's no no shame, no embarrassment. The part about it being sold to us as not a new tax, as, as as Marge made the point earlier, this is actually the part that almost drives me the craziest. The idea that they think that they can make us think that it's not costing us anything when it's a giant opportunity cost. And, and actually, it is possible that we could get more tourism if it wasn't so expensive to stay here. That can't be good. For tourism it also can't be good for like attracting convention business and if you're, if you're trying to sell right. uh, an industry or a trade group on coming to chicago for convention thing they you know they they sharpen their pencils and look at at the various costs that they're going to inflict on their people who are coming and they say hey, you know i mean and two percent doesn't sound like much but it, it ends up as as we know it ends up being millions and millions of dollars uh, and I can see it just being it being a drag on the on the local economy, and if you get some some real benefit from that drag, as Marge points out, if you get some uh, affordable housing out of it, or or some services that need done, and of course, just today we had, uh, or just say on Wednesday, I should say, we, we had this, uh, we had Mayor Johnson uh, announcing his big plans and getting rid of TIF districts and changing investment. We had, had Governor Pritzker talking about a bunch of new programs that he wants to fund, and there are. There are human needs out there that the government is trying to meet, and to say that well, one, the the top priority of human needs here is is a um, flashy new stadium. Uh, it, it doesn't it doesn't add up to me. No, but need is the wrong word. It's want. If you said to people, "Hey, what would you want? White Sox on the South Loop, or in ten years we'll throw off some money to help the poor," people go, "Ah, I like the sketch." Unless I mean, you ask the poor. John, what are you, what are your reader uh, listen? What are your uh, listeners saying about this? Hundred, you, you, you they thought? they erupted with 
Don't give, yeah, love the idea. Don't give Reinsdorf any money. Don't give Reinsdorf any money. Do not give Reinsdorf any money. Somebody texted in and said, tell him to go to Nashville and suck there. If, if they had stayed at Old Comiskey, if, if they were like an old decrepit stadium and they, and they needed to be, I, I could really see like, okay, well, maybe we need to do that. Kind of like when the uh, Chicago Stadium became the United Center. Uh, the stadium was kind of a dump. Uh, old Comiskey Park, I know Kate loves it, but it was it was kind of rough around the edges. <laughs> Same with Soldier Field and the Bears. It's like, you guys, you had your chance to have a state-of-the-art stadium not that long ago, and we helped you pay for it, and now you want you're coming back to us? Well, it's not only, you know, maybe we want to help the poor with that money. It's literally any crisis that may arise, right? Like, then that money's locked up. Like, you can't touch it. It's in a lockbox. And Chicago has a habit of doing this. Well, we'll just take the parking meter money. No, wait, the... The Skyway oh, wow. money. No way. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why it's in a lockbox because they've proven inept at that. But in theory, you don't want to be chopping up your tax base so much that everything's just a dedicated lockbox. What happened time. with Soldier Field is that uh, Mayor Emanuel twice, I think, uh, ex- extended the term, ended up paying the principal on Soldier Field, but not the interest. So the original... Three hundred and ninety-nine million, according to an NBC TV study a little while ago, is now six hundred and forty million dollars over the original. I mean, almost it's going to be double the original. They want to kick it down another twenty years, basically, by adding on more money. We're going to keep paying off Soldier Field. I, I don't. I, I just don't understand. Uh, and uh, Austin, here's where I thought you were going to go: is that even with the two percent hotel tax what if we decide the tax is too high and it's hurting commerce or tourism or other things we can't cut it because it's not even ours and then there's the sales tax overlay while governor pritzker in his budget address this week is talking about doing away with the grocery tax for example now reinsdorf wants a sales tax just for him dedicated to him over the 78, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean the target across the street where I and my neighbors now shop and spend a fair amount of money? Does that mean the groceries? And there is no grocery tax, so he's going to add tax on our groceries if we buy them at Target or Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or all in and around this area. What kind of area is he talking about? Or is it just going to be the restaurants that form in the 78 where we can walk to for dinner, but now we're going to have to pay Reinsdorf? This is not an isolated island that he's creating. It's part of our city, and we all should be able to benefit from what goes there, not just the private I think that boundary of the tax is going to be wherever Marge Halperin shops is where they're going to. um, (laughs) He's going to make me pay. Yes. You're going to be the typhoid Mary of this tax, and wherever you go, (laughs) the tax will be. But just one last thing to consider, though. Maybe his timing is good, Reinsdorf's, in that – we need to find more ways to attract people downtown, to shop, to be tourists, or to go back into offices. This is a big, shiny object. And I don't know how you put a value on entertainment besides just the dollars of it, you know, the, the, the commerce of it. But there's something to be said about a beautiful, fun venue that's hard to quantify. Out of the gate, I'm not opposed to building a stadium on the south side, even with some tax dollars, if it's going to make the general populace happier. And I really think it's a sad commentary to abandon the south side this way, you know, and and I don't just mean – We're not abandoning the south side, though. I mean, that that 78 is going to get developed. It's a prime piece of real estate. It's not like it's going to go vacant forever. And oh, I'm talking about the Sox Stadium where they are now. If you if you oh. pull up stakes and just go further north, that's literally abandoning the South Side. That's like getting away from the crime and and the the poor neighborhoods on the South Side and nuzzling yourself up to the loop. That Berkeley Economic Review report addresses that very point, as do many of these studies, which is basically it. You know, if you're watching, you're a fan and you want to support rooting for your team, that's a good thing. But professional sports owners, billionaires, are profiting off the fans' commitment by having the local taxpayers foot the bill. That is not a logical if-then conclusion. Maybe we media creatures need to look in the mirror. Clearly, we're doing something wrong. 
Lori Lightfoot didn't like or trust us, especially when she left. And now Brandon Johnson zoomed out of a Sun-Times editorial board meeting when they couldn't promise that his remarks would remain off the record. Uh, I want to just talk a little bit about how Johnson is running the city and the city is taking care of its affairs. So we can start here anyway. Do I understand correctly, guys, what happened there? And how unusual is that for the mayor to come in with his person and then zoom into an editorial board meeting, and but then them say, this has to be off the record, and you're the mayor? How common or not common is that? Well, I, I attended many, many, you know, at least dozens, scores of meetings with the editorial board and politicians when I was uh, editorial board adjacent at the Tribune. And I never once heard a politician say anything was off the record at, at those meetings. There were, you know, at the time, like eight, eight to 12 of us around the table asking questions. And the idea that it'd be off the record is, was kind of absurd. I have had off the record interviews in my life. I think every journalist has where you need the background. And, and generally, it's someone with, you know, who has some information for you that's going to help you in the furtherance of the story. The story here was an interview with Brandon Johnson about how things are going. And it was really, really amateur hour on the part of his communications team to not get the ground rules set uh, in advance, because I don't think Lorraine Forte, who's the um, uh, editor of the editorial page, would have agreed to even start the Zoom program going if she had known that it was off the record. And in fact, when they, they all got together on Zoom and then the uh, communications director said, oh, by the way, this is off the record. And, and sometimes editorial board, Forte said, no, it's not. It's, you know, absolutely not. And so Brandon Johnson zoomed out. And that was just another example of, of Brandon Johnson not being able to see around corners. And we, we talked about this last week with his thing with ShotSpotter, where he decides that he wants to end the contract with ShotSpotter and that he says, well, and we're going to have a six-month extension. And then it, it turns out that he never managed to arrange for that with the ShotSpotter company. Uh, and, it is, and in the interim, they have arranged something. But it was like this, this several days of confusion and finger-pointing, uh, which is it just – Sort of really lousy management, and you just think this this guy is is not ready to be mayor. Does not know how to run things. He's got a, a very weird communications team. His his communications director is a former deputy communications director for the Chicago Teachers Union. I mean, you've got to have somebody who knows the Chicago media, who knows how who knows how basic journalism works, and they clearly didn't. Yes, to all of that, my communications uh, background tells me yes to all of that, and. It, and, and I don't understand, well, like in the shot spotter example, what was so hard about that? I, I, they have, there's all, again, all kinds of studies that show how ineffective shot spotter is. Why didn't they just start with that? I think it's a uh, Nashville who made their decision to not have shot spotter based on a study of Chicago's experience. I know, Austin, you said they were trying some new things to make it more effective, and that's of interest. But you have plenty to go on if you don't want to have it now. Why uh, Why he didn't just start with that? But the basic yes or no, um, I'll give you my very quick training in Communications 101. We call it ABC. Someone asked you a yes or no question, address the question, say yes or no, or I don't know, bridge over to what you want to communicate. Well, yes. But when I look at all these studies, I see ShotSpotter is not worth the paper, you know, we've paid it and forget it. And then people forget what your first thing is, but they feel satisfied that you answered them. It may be a yes or no question to you, but not to me is is a terrible, annoying response to what's, any. What's the C in that? So address, bridge, communicate. and communicate. Communicate the thing that you want to communicate. The debate about ShotSpotter is independent of the question of whether Johnson should have gotten his ducks in a row before he came out and announced what was going to happen. I mean, he came out and said, we're going to, I mean, the contract runs out, it was last Friday, but we're going to extend it through September. And ShotSpotter was like, what? Like, nobody asked us about this. Austin predicted like, that here. Yes. Yes, he did. I was, I, you know, I, I was, uh, I was uh, humiliated by that. He, I think he texted me about that. <laughs> yeah, I, and I was, I was stunned. And, and it, well, in fact, they did come back and they, and they are going to take the city's money. I don't know how much. Uh, it, that's it, just uh, it, though. Austin, Austin had that right, too. They probably, uh, they probably did really uh, raise the the price because uh, Brandon Johnson just completely lost any negotiating position by by waiting until the day before to say that he didn't want it and not negotiating it in advance. Um, they're not saying they're not admitting 
how much this is going to cost us. Marge, can I circle back to this this issue with the with the meeting with the editorial board? Mm-hmm. It's like it is. It's just like communications one hundred and one to say like, what are the ground rules for this for this meeting? We're going to have this. I mean, he's the mayor of Chicago. He's got a full time communications director, and they're sitting down and they don't have the ground rules set up. I mean. It just it boggles my mind that that it could be such amateur hour. Um, it's almost as if they thought it would be off the record. I, I picture this. I, I may be wrong, uh, but I picture them sitting down and saying, "Well, it's off the record, right?" Thinking that always off the record. No, we're never. Off. Oh, you're not. Well, then never mind. Like just because that's the amateur piece I'm picturing. They didn't even know to ask in advance. I don't know how else you could explain well, what it. Do you th- uh, what do you think it was that Brandon Johnson was afraid to have on the record? What Everything. Were, uh, but I mean, yeah, but I mean, then then what were they sitting down for? What- I think it was that there, he's he's releasing this bond deal supposedly today. It's like $1.2 billion in, in that the city is going to do in public financing. There might've, he might've wanted to talk about that, but I'm sure the editorial board wanted to talk about Hey, how much did that shot spotter deal cost that you signed Friday that you didn't tell us how much it cost? Hey, um, when you said to J.B. Pritzker and Tony Preckwinkle that the city was going to pony up an additional 70 plus million dollars for immigrants uh, because Tony Preckwinkle and J.B. Pritzker were going to go get their share and you said you would get yours and then you backed out. Why did that happen? They would have asked about the fact that a guy in his leadership team allegedly put his hands on another alderman which would be the second time a member of Brandon Johnson's leadership team put his hands on somebody else. And by the way, his number one political backer, Stacey Davis Gates, had a police report filed on her for saying that telling teachers at a school that they should punch their principal in the face. Maybe Brandon Johnson has a problem with effective communication. Maybe the CTU has a problem with people who disagree with them. And maybe this administration is better at organizing and punching people in the face than they are at governing anything. And I think everybody has come to see that. Well, and, and, and of course, Johnson has proven himself at these press conferences that he has, his media availabilities, that he's not good at answering those questions. And, and he's increasingly infuriating the reporters who are asking those questions. He's saying you know, that, that they were just, they were pressing this, this issue of $70 million that he said he was going to spend and then apparently pulled off the table. At, at a recent, it was a week ago or so, and and the reporters kept asking him. He kept giving him this word salad, and and then saying, "There's nobody, nobody in America thinks any thinks I am not the most committed to helping the migrants." And it's, it was just like this kind of nutty talk. And you know, the journalists in town, you see, you certainly see them on social media, are just like are they're flabbergasted by this man's inability to communicate and his administration's inability to communicate. So so I think uh, Austin's exactly right that there, he listed several of those issues that Johnson doesn't know how to address yet. And he wanted he probably wanted to come on and just give them his spiel. And and this this happened. I mean, the editorial board, we would have these meetings and and say Preckwinkle would come in and she would she would just run through her budget and that would be it. And then we, we would try to ask her about other stuff and she'd go, you know, no. I mean, these, and these were on the record, but – you know, they were hour-long meetings. We weren't going to write a whole story about it. And she would just stick to her talking points. And then we would, we would walk out of the room going, well, that was kind of a waste of time. <laughs> and that would happen with, with, with the mayor. And that would happen sometimes with the governor that they would they would come in with their agenda. And, and that would happen. But but Johnson does not deflect well. And and, uh, and he has some really tough questions to answer and doesn't want to answer them. But he what happened at that editorial board thing is even more insane on top of what happened at last week's press conference. I don't know if any of you had a chance to watch it. I literally had to start typing what he was saying in order to see if it actually added up to anything at all, because it was kind of like trying to grab confetti out of the air <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and try and figure out if he was even attempting to answer anything. What was the topic? Course, what were they talking about, Kate? What, what was that? Well, about? the two things, as, as, as Eric indicated, the two things that they spent the most time on was the whether or not he had committed to $70 million um, from the city towards the migrant care for the rest of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, Pritzker's people, and I believe Preckwinkle's people, also told everybody, told the press, that Johnson had committed to that $70 million, but now Brandon Johnson would not actually admit to that. And that 
was just driving the reporters crazy because he just would not actually answer what was going on with that $70 million. And the other one was whether or not ShotSpotter was going to be turned off the very next day. And that was the one where they finally said, can you just give us a yes or no answer? And he just, he would not do it. That led to the Franz Spielman, sometimes very long analysis of his problems with the press. So you would think that he would absolutely have his ducks in a row before he met with the Sun-Times editorial board. So it, it's it's just an amazing sequential uh, debacle there that just shows that they, they cannot learn, apparently. Fran mentioned in her piece, the press is becoming hostile. But I would have said after listening to that press conference, I didn't think anybody was hostile. Unless you take it to be hostility, simply to ask a question and to ask for it to be answered. It's funny, in our run-up to this, one of you said on our shared doc that, is this piling on? Or is this, you know, every, it seems like every podcast, every day on the radio, we're saying how the city's being mismanaged and Brandon Johnson knows how to run for mayor, not how to be mayor. Are we being fair about this? I will admit to having a natural allergy to the story being how the politician interacts with media, because that on its face only affects people who work in media. But these stories, actually, these problems affect everybody. They don't just affect people in media. And ShotSpotter is a great example of that, that the city is going to be paying millions of dollars more because of an incompetent mayoral administration. That's the bottom line. And all of us, everybody in the city is going to be paying for that. Uh, the fact that the your mayor has an approval rating in the low to mid 20 percent affects the city's ability to get what it needs from the state and from the county and from the federal government. That is in part due to his poor media relations. But ultimately, I think the poor, poor media relations is downstream from poor decision making and being held to account for that and not liking being held to account mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that for that reason, it's completely fair uh, to pile on there. Now, what's daunting, similar to how we have, you know, like 70 degree weather next week, it's like this guy isn't even a year in this th- right now. Status quo, he's going to be in office for another three years. So, like, what do we do about that? And it's going to be really interesting to see there's an election in a month, March 19th. He has his big Tax, tax referendum on it that he says will be used for homelessness. People can decide whether or not they think that this administration can use that money competently or whether they believe the promises that he's giving them. That's one thing you can do. Um, right now, there is no recall provision uh, in our state law that allows you to recall a mayor. But if you live in Chicago, you have a state representative and that person could make that happen. I think I, I agree with the general point of like, well, what's ultimate if the current mayor is incompetent and is like Donald Trump, like it's like a horse running around the hospital, like the John Mulaney analogy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you do about that? This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. <laughs> it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's going to be OK, but I have no idea what's going to happen next. And neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is going to do next, least of all the horse. That, I think, does deserve more conversation. But you could also, I thought you would ask it this way. What what can he do about it? You know, and there's a line from Joe Ferguson in Franz Spielman's article, uh, Analysis, uh, Joe Ferguson being the former city inspector general and currently the president of the Civic Federation, who says this requires more communication, not less. You don't build more trust by going into your hole and not coming out and talking or by refusing or being yelling and giving short snippets or word salads. He should be doing a series of sit down interviews and repairing the relationship. Most of the time, like you, Kate, I watch and I'm like, what is he trying to say? Instead of taking notes, I'm yelling at my television, a much better answer than the one he just gave. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there are ways to answer this. 
you know, I, the idea, why didn't you give that money? No one in the country questions my commitment to homeless population. It's not an answer, but it could have been one if he'd have said, we need to continue negotiating about where that money comes from and how it's best spent. But in the meantime, I want to assure the city that I am fully committed to making this to a good solution because no one can doubt my commitment. You answer and then you bridge over to what it is you want to say, but he doesn't. A, B, C. A, B, C. That's free. Margie, you're a communication professional, and it just strikes me that he does not have good people around him. That you that when you are at that level, you need to have people who really understand communicating and and effective communicating. And, he, and I just I don't see that from him. He's got Jason Lee, who seems like kind of a, a hard ass, who who uh, seems to be crosswise with a lot of journalists, and he's got this. Uh, this guy Reese, who's his, who's his the former CTU uh, deputy spokesman. I mean, where where are the communications professionals who are sitting down with him and strategizing? Because this was like a complete own goal, right? This is a complete unforced error. Yes. This, this Sun Times story and, and Fran Spielman's story in Wednesday Sun Times is just I think fairly devastating. Lots of really uh, good quotes from people who, who are good who are good communicators who know who know strategy. You know, they may be people may dismiss them as political hacks, but communicating is really important for political leaders. I just I'm just like I, I saw that story. I'm just like this is unbelievable. After after last week, after all the things he's done, after his low poll numbers, to come out and do that. Knowing that it was going to be a story in the Sun Times, he wasn't like meeting with the Civic Council and he decides it's off the record and he walks out. This is meeting with the Sun Times. They buy ink by the barrel. I mean, it was just really, really stupid. And yeah. and you know that heads won't roll over there. That he, he doesn't. He's not going to bring somebody in who can really talk sense to him. Who he's going to listen to? He's got someone from from the old union, you know, cheering him on or whatever. We start by asking. You know, is he getting bad advice or is he refusing to take good advice? But I'm now at the point you're at, Eric, where I think he is just not getting good advice. It, but also, I, I'm speculating some ego issue. He always has been a strong communicator. He's a community organizer. That's what his skill has been in, in community groups and in one-on-one um, with community leaders. But communicating as a mayor when you're responsible is a different kind of communication. And I think he doesn't probably, I don't know, I'm beginning to wonder if he just doesn't think he needs advice. That I've always been a great communicator, that charisma has always been his calling card. And we were all charmed by him, uh, you know, uh, as we became, got to know him better. But suddenly he's in control and he's like, why are you questioning me? I was elected. He's got that, there's an edge of arrogance that I think is part of what's complicating the whole communication. And power. And I also think, regardless of how good a communicator he was, and he was a charming candidate, I think effective communication as a person in office looks easy, but it's not as easy as it looks. What do you know? This job is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Literally, the communication of it is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, and it's on full display. Now, I've led communications for elected officials. I've taken mayors and other public officials into the editorial boards. Um, so I know what that environment is like. You prep ahead of time. You know what the hard questions are going to be, and you role play them. Sort of a, being a communications advisor is kind of like being a lawyer. You don't uh, want to ask a question you don't know the answer to. Yeah. Um, and so there certainly was a way to prepare for that where you would not need to be off the record. All of us, in turn, have listed the questions that would have been tricky in that session. So why couldn't his communication folks come up with good answers for all those questions? And he goes in there ready to, especially on Zoom, where you could have notes or you could be staring at your notes on the screen. It couldn't be easier. Right. But if, but if Austin funny. had prepped the mayor for what was likely going to happen in there, the mayor, Austin, would have said, uh, let's not do this because I, do, I don't want to answer those questions. Some of these problems, you could try to spin them any which way. Like it's very to even come up with a good answer because he's put himself in all these trick boxes. And I think you have make a great point about the humility that is required. And what you see the mayor's allies doing when these snafus happen or when these decisions happen, like taking uh, unilaterally taking all police officers out of schools, regardless of what uh, local communities think, is the refrain. Well, he's 
he got elected. This is what we elected him to do. The reality is that in the first round of the mayoral elections, Brandon Johnson got like, what, 20, a little bit over 20 percent of the vote. The reason he's mayor is the people who voted for someone else and then voted for Brandon Johnson. It's not like the entire his entire electorate was like the whole time we're, we're going to get Brandon into office. It was people that he persuaded. Right. And he won by a very slim margin. And now that he is mayor, we're seeing that it's a it's a constant pattern. In, and there's three elements of it. Shotspotter is a perfect example. One is just the simple incompetence of basic decisions. The second is listening to the demands of the furthest left part of your coalition without taking citywide interests into account. And then the third is when you don't get what you want, it's gaslighting, it's bullying, nastiness. And we're seeing all three of those happen, and they're happening more and more. I'm not sure his decisions are entirely driven by the furthest left faction. As I said about ShotSpotter, that was quickly, quickly written up in all the media as being a response to the far left. But in fact, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, there are studies all over the country that show that ShotSpotter is ineffective. You could take the funding for that and put it into more effective policing methods and come out ahead and be safer as well. Um, so that's the one part of your analysis I'm a little uncomfortable with. The rest of it, can't disagree. Alexei Navalny, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin's most prominent domestic foe, died on Friday at an Arctic prison where he was serving a three-decade prison term. He was walking on the prison grounds when suddenly this 47-year-old lawyer dropped and died. About that, Donald Trump compared the $355 million fine imposed on him as his own Navalning. It's happening in our country, too, Trump said. He hasn't taken time to condemn what seems almost certain to be Vladimir Putin's hand in this. And Tucker Carlson paused from his busy grocery run in Moscow to say that no decent person would defend what Putin has done, which for Carlson must feel like some really tough talk. Eric, what was your just thought about that story this week? My first thought is that that Putin has been emboldened by the Republican Party's failure to embrace funding for Ukraine, that he feels like he sees the United States coalition crumbling, and he he, he was emboldened by that. I mean, this, this idea of uh, presidential immunity that Donald Trump seems to cling to, uh, Putin has presidential immunity, and it seems pretty clear that he murdered his political opponents, which is something that, you know, Donald Trump would like to do if he had the chance. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I, I, it, it really strikes me. It was a scary reminder. I mean, it's just, this isn't like the first time that they've absolutely got the heel of the boot down on political dissent in that country. They, they tried to poison him several years ago, right? He yeah. just barely survived yeah. that. It's a reminder of how grotesque that regime is how awful a person Putin is. And the fact that Donald Trump, who manages to insult and degrade and say terrible things and lie about just about everybody else, won't say anything bad about Putin. He won't come out and and, and uh, even say what Tucker Carlson said, which is that it was an indefensible act. It really starts to trouble me that that there's this Republican base that will not abandon him. That you look at, at the polls in the South Carolina primary, he's beating Nikki Haley something like two to one in her home state. And he is clearly a traitorous and awful human being. And this is just an illustration, his alliance with Putin and how terrible and awful Putin is, how how he contravenes all of our national values is uh, is undeniable and striking. I think there's a cycle. It's it's less of a reasoned decision, and it's more the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And they see Trump being dragged through the mud on charges of Russian conspiracy that they believe to be unjust. And therefore, and here's the huge problem, Vladimir Putin is our friend. Yeah. <laughs> and and, every, and the only thing we need to watch to show that that's not true, and I think maybe the single greatest scene of any documentary ever is in the CNN documentary about Navalny, which is called Navalny. And it is Navalny calling up numbers of his potential assassins from that incident that Eric talked about, where he was poisoned. They get the cell phone numbers of phones that were around him during the time that that happened. And he calls them up one by one, pretending that he's their boss in the KGB and asking them what the hell went wrong. Why didn't you kill Navalny? And they respond to him. 
in real time. And he does it with joy and aplomb of a, of like a crank collar. And it's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And they own it. They admit to, yeah, sorry, boss, we meant to he kill him. Every, he goes step by step to what went wrong, what he tried to do, why he didn't poison him, what went wrong. Like, it's incredible. Like, it's, it's totally unbelievable. And it lays bare sort of just the awful political violence of that country and the way in which it is just completely indistinguishable from from the mafia or any kind of gang. Right. Um Really extraordinary. I suggest everybody everybody watch it. So then Navalny goes to Germany. He recovers from the poisoning. And then knowing full well they tried to kill him once, if he comes back to Russia, they'll probably take another swing at him. And he comes back to Russia. He gets arrested. He goes to this prison in the Arctic Circle or wherever it is. Doesn't sound like a nice place. 30-year sentence. Boy, you got to admire the courage of that man's convictions. I mean, he he must have known how this was going to play out. But they won't release his body. But he was seen. The odd thing I thought was sloppy, even that he was uh, in some public appearance the day before. People saw him perfectly healthy. Couldn't they have waited a week? At least give him time to you know get COVID or something. <laughs> <laughs> really, the, the indifference. They picked him off yeah. when we knew he was healthy. But I. I I see another reason why the right wing is uh, so in love with Putin. They're also in love, you know, with Orban in Hungary. They had their CPAC conference there a couple of years ago to celebrate. They celebrate dictatorship, paternalism, because that's what they want. That's the only way they're going to hold on to power in this country. They're in the minority. I don't believe that, though. That's that's glib. But that's not that cannot be true. That the, well, it shouldn't be. But why? Isn't it? I you don't see? know. I don't know. But I mean, do you, you really don't think that, do you, Mark? That's what Trump wants, and they support Trump. I don't think most Republicans in this country, it. or whatever the right wing of Republicanism is in this country, wants a dictator. The leadership does because they'll lose power otherwise. Who are the leaders then? I mean, are well, you Jim Jordan, for example, today when uh, the key bit of evidence, if you want to call it that, in their impeachment effort against Biden was the guy who brought it forward said he made it up. And they're, yeah, but we got other facts. Whereas just a week before, he said that was the most important, crucial evidence we have. You know, the smoking gun. And the guy said, yeah, it's fake. I made it up. Well, we got other stuff. They, they're they losing the majority and they lose power. The Republican Party whatever percentage currently, 80% or whatever, supports Trump. But it's much smaller than it used to be because the people, to your point, the people who don't believe in that are leaving the party. They'll come back if they have a more moderate leader. But there's a reason why Mike Johnson, he gave a big speech yesterday about leading the country, and it was uh, half out of the Bible. They believe in paternalism. They believe in holding on to their power any way they can, and Trump seems to be able to coalesce power. When when Trump, was it this week or last week, said about NATO that Russia ought to just have at those people, bomb the hell out of them or whatever it was because they're whatever not paying they what their fair yeah, share is. And then I forget who it was, but there was one Republican senator who said, oh, come on, that's Trump. His point isn't to bomb NATO countries. It's to get NATO countries to pay. You You know, you've got to read between the lines a little bit. Don't take Trump verbatim. Well, that's what we thought before he was elected. Remember all the hopeful uh, naivete about him becoming presidential once he actually was in office. And in fact, he did the things he said he was going to do. He tried to. He didn't build a wall. He didn't get Mexico to pay for well, it. Well, he built he didn't get Mexico to pay for it. A big, beautiful health care plan to replace Obamacare. Um, I mean, the line with the Republicans always give is, is take Trump seriously, but don't take him literally, which is a hell of a thing to say about a president of the United States. Given our angst over the way our mayor communicates, why would we cut him all that slack? You know, it's funny when we were talking about 
Brandon Johnson's sort of incompetence in communication, I was thinking a little bit about Joe Biden, because I think Joe Biden has become an incompetent communicator, but I don't know that he's become an incompetent administrator. You can very quickly point to a lot of things this administration has done that required an understanding of the facts on the ground and and competence, even if Joe Biden isn't good at communicating. We've kind of had this conversation on and off on this podcast, too. I think you are all hot, too, or several of you were, to Kate was leading this charge to get uh, Joe Biden off the ticket as much as I wish he wasn't on it I I would like to think that we could judge him by his actions and not so much his words it reminded me that Johnson seems to be not only bad at both his words and his actions where I think uh, Joe Biden seems to be able to manage affairs if you're willing to not include communicating about them in in managing them But I think the difference between Biden and Johnson is that Biden, of course, had been in government his entire life, knew all the right people to get in place. He's got an experienced staff. And Johnson, as we all know, came directly from being an activist. And I'm sure we all remember Jeanette Taylor going on Ben Jarafsky's show, what was it, in December or something, and and saying, now that we, meaning Brandon Johnson and, and progressives in general, uh, are in power, we don't know what to do with it. We, we're, we look stupid. Have you guys paid attention to the $50,000 scam story? A writer for New York Magazine's The Cut, Charlotte Cowles, revealed last week how she was taken in by scam artists to the tune of $50,000 in cash, handed to the scammers through the window of their BMW after it stopped in front of her house. It's a bizarre, shocking story. I won't go into all the details here, but in short, she was contacted by what she thought was Amazon about suspicious activity on her account. She was handed off to others posing as FTC and CIA agents, and in the course of a half a day on Halloween, she was able to be convinced that her family's money and well-being were in such jeopardy that she went to the bank, she got $50,000 in hundreds, and handed it over to a scammer. And she writes about finance. She's not an idiot. The stories I've heard from my listeners since are twofold. One is... What an idiot, full of money or quickly parted, or, oh, that happened to my uncle too, or it happened to me. A woman called in and said on two consecutive days via a similar scam, she handed over to bad guys $20,000 and the next day $9,000. It is amazing. You read that story and you think this is a, a journalist who yeah. covers personal finance. I mean, this, this is the kind of person, and she's not old or, or you know, I mean, the, the seniors tend to be victims of these scams more often than most people. And and uh, they managed to get her into some sort of a, of a state where she was became paranoid and and uh, and they kept passing her off and giving her things that sounded plausible. And they kept saying, well, don't call the police, don't call a lawyer, because if you do, you'll be in trouble with the people who are scamming you. And yep. I mean, it was, it was all in retrospect, very implausible. I, a lot of people were piling onto her online. The truth is that a lot of people who get scammed like this are, are ashamed and they don't even report it. Uh, they don't even tell their family about it and, and it, because it is a shameful thing, and she's getting her a full dose of shame for it. But I give her a lot of credit for, for going out and telling this story and reminding people how easy it is for people who are – they're not stupid. And she's she behaved idiotically, but she, I don't think she's an idiot. And, and it's a good reminder to people. And, and if more people told those stories and we would, we would – I mean I, one of my thoughts is there ought to be a column in every newspaper in America, a weekly column at least on the latest techniques that scam artists are using. There's, there's a new one right now where they, they are the, – they, they're scraping obituaries and they're creating these fake sites that say like here is the live stream of the funeral and they're able to contact – the relatives, uh, not relatives, but friends, uh, associates of the deceased and tell them to go to the site, live stream the funeral, and then they get their credit card information and, then, and it's gone. And you just got to publicize it. People got to know about these things and they've got to know about how this scam worked on this on this 
writer. And, and once they do, you hope that they're a little bit inoculated from it. But, but uh, I, I, say, I give her credit. She, she may have behaved idiotically, but it would have been really easy for her just to eat the $50,000 and not say a thing to anybody yeah, right. except her husband about it. And she, you know, that, I thought it was a brave act of journalism that she did that. I know a lot of your listeners, John, thought that she was running a scam yeah, with right. this. That's no now, good deed I'm, goes unpunished. I mean, she's willing to throw herself on the sword, and then people go, oh, no. What possible upside is there to her for this? I don't think that is what happened, because it just seems even more too out there. Yeah. But I, I, I understand what they're thinking. They're thinking that this is something she made up, and she will like sell it as it used to be, right, uh, a made-for-TV movie of the week, we would say. Um, that she could be, you know, planning to sell her story. Yeah. Um, so I can understand why some people would think that it is a scam. It It is a little still hard for me to believe that she could scrape together $50,000 in that amount of time. Sure, she had that in a savings account. That's, That's a little hard for me to believe that the, the bank handed that over. The reason that I think it's not a scam or hoax is that there are a number of really checkable details. She says she called 911, for instance. Uh, there would be a record of that. She says she called, you know, she, that, and there would be bank records. And anybody who begins digging a little bit into this story, if there's going to be a movie or a book or something like that, and discovers that it's a hoax. Her entire career is gone. She is she's like the uh, woman at the Washington Post who made up the story about the young heroin addict, and you've right. never heard from again. This woman has a good job as as a financial reporter, and right. she's going to risk her career for a bunch of clicks. I don't think so. I mean, that, that, this is that why doesn't add yeah, up. I find the details almost impossible to believe when it comes right down to it. For the exact reason you said, Eric, I I think it has to be a true story. <laughs> um, it would be easier for me to believe if it was more like 2000, 5000 because it is very hard for me to imagine even thinking to attempt to get $50,000 uh for, for That was any- a big red flag, you're right, but for a lot of the listeners. Without telling her husband. So, you know, there were so many pieces of this. It didn't have a Nigerian prince, but it kind of had all the other pieces that you just know, you know, oh, I'll let you talk to the CIA. Hold on. You know, hold on. Here's the CIA. Is that really how you get? And and fun, as my daughter said to me, she said the first every child uh, from the age of, you know, four knows that if someone tells you, keep it a secret, don't tell your family, that it's bad and you need to tell your family. So here she gets $50,000, to your point, Kate, from the bank without her husband. She has 50000 in liquid savings. As a financial reporter, that surprises me anyway. Um, and then she can get it in a matter of hours without telling her co-owner of the 50000 yeah, And she yeah. doesn't think to tell him. I, there, all those pieces made it hard to believe. And, this whole thing know, transpired in eight now, hours. In eight there's hours. one number one thing that makes it impossible to believe. How did she get Amazon on the phone to talk to? Because I cannot get them on the phone for anything. <laughs> they called her. Finally, Amazon called actually her. got in touch with her. They, they don't do that. And the first thing you do is call back. Do not answer unknown numbers ever unless you have a pizza delivery that you know is outside. That's the only context in which it's appropriate. Otherwise, they can leave a message. They can send you a text. There's no re- there, nothing good is going to come on the phone when you answer no number ever. Before Eric has to go back on vacation, what was that exchange you were having with Kate about Wordle? The New York Times published a, uh, a report talking about the best starting words for Wordle, and it turns out that the best starting word is slate. Uh, and, and my contention is that you, people post their Wordle scores on social media, and the scores are meaningless because you don't know what word they started with. And how you end up often depends on what word you started with. So my idea was they should they should have a a starting word every day. Like we'll start with this word, and you'll and you and we'll see how long it takes you to get to the end. Well, my family had a had a Wordle competition every day for the, basically all summer of of twenty three. Uh, we were or 22, I should say that we were, we were looking at, um, uh, we would always start with the same word we, early in the day. We'd send the word around. It was often something to do with the, with the news. And then we would see who got to, who got the best score starting with that word. And I think Wordle should, should, uh, 
to do that, that there should be a, this is your starting word today and then see how, how long it takes you to get to the end. My starting word is always the same. I always use mints, as in mincing rascals. I don't think that's a very good. uh, And that's a terrible. And I got to tell you, that's a terrible starting word. Well, well, my feeling is that uh, people posting their wordle scores on social media is already meaningless. I, I don't care what anybody's score was. Period. It's just something that I enjoy doing. I took your comment. Eric, to to mean that you did want to take my word away from me, my word being audio, Um, because with audio, you're getting practically all the vowels in there. And based on what you get back, you can plug in a couple of different words and just cover all those vowels, boom, within two words, and you're done. I want to take your word away. I do, Kate. Well, see, you want to take my word away. And my feeling is I don't care what anybody's score is. I don't post my score. I don't even keep track of their statistics on me. They don't even have good statistics on me because I log in from different places. They don't even know what I am because I don't care. It it makes no difference to me. I have to interject. Producer Peach has handed this to me. Alice Yin at the Tribune has just tweeted, Mayor Brandon Johnson reveals the seven-month extension and two-month transition period for shot spotter. Before contract is not renewed, will cost roughly eight million dollars. Isn't that wasn't this the annual? Isn't that similar to what the annual contract was? I don't yes, it is. It cost us, I believe, nine, nine. million um, last year. Wow. We uh, last week said, let's uh, walk through some of the movies that are nominated for Best Picture. We've walked our way through a few of them. Last, well, The first time we did Barbie. Then we did Maestro. We also did The Holdovers. Uh, today, uh, Past Lives. I think we all saw Past Lives. I didn't, John. I, I'm going to clock out. Yeah, gotta, you got to go. Gotta, go. I got to go, but you guys can uh, talk about Past Lives, I, I'll, and I'll listen avidly to the podcast. <laughs> nice job, Eric. Thank so, you. See you guys. Good to see y'all. Bye. Past Lives. I was charmed by it. I thought it was the nicest movie of the 10 and one of the nicest movies I've seen in a long time. Austin, did you like it as much as I did? I loved it. I thought it was so thoughtfully directed. And then I read that that was that director's first ever feature film, which was insane because it was so just carefully shot and you can and it's one of those movies where you can remember exactly how certain scenes are shot so the opening scene is these people at a bar and then you come that it all comes back to those people at the bar at the end it's so beautiful and then i i don't think i've ever seen a performance like the lead actors in terms of um the emotions that were displayed so subtly without words from a male character about their love interest and that those two things really stood out to me about that. So. Yeah, she was. I was charmed by her, and I thought they were great. It's the story of two kids who grow up and grow apart, and then maybe reconnect years later. But by this time, she's now found another life and is married, and so now this young man reunites with this young woman. But she's married now, and you wonder if they're going to have some sort of connection again, what their relationship is like. And uh, I didn't know how the movie was going to end either. Did you wonder if she's going to leave her husband or if she's going to stay with her husband? Or was it pretty obvious? I don't think it was obvious. Um, You did wonder. And they put this interlude when they were both still single where they were re- they were kindling a romance and rekindling because they were children before. And then they flash forward. So that added some confusion. I think I read also, Austin, that it's based in some part on her real life experience as well. I thought the scenes with uh, him and his friends were terrific. How they interacted and how they teased each other, how they would get drunk but still protect each other. Just the buddy piece of it, I thought, was really uh, convincing and well done. But as you said, they said so much without words. It was very impressive. And they weren't just a bunch of drunk bros, even when they were drunk bros. They were sweet and thoughtful. You could tell they cared for each other. Really striking how she managed, um, the the writer-director, how she managed to do so much with the dialogue being incredibly natural, um, as opposed to like the direct opposite would be a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? With like really great snappy dialogue. And you can tell every, every scene 
has a beginning and end, you know where it's going to go, and it, it goes where it's supposed to go. And she really broke a lot of rules with with her dialogue being very meandering, some some very long interludes where it almost gets painful at some points where you're like, oh my gosh, what uh, what are they going to say to each other next? It was always in, in service to the relationship between the characters, and it was never boring. It always ended up working. And that's, uh, she was really breaking rules and, and doing it. For that to be her first movie is, is really astonishing. The other thing she did, which I have never seen done well ever, is because there were so many COVID movies that used this as a plot device where people are on Zoom and yeah. it sucks. And nobody knows how to do the pacing and it doesn't really serve the story in any kind of way. And there are like several scenes in that movie that are devastating that happen over a Zoom call. And as so I had a long distance relationship with my wife for two years before we lived in the same city. And sometimes we were in different countries, sometimes in a different part of the country. And there's so, no one that's never been captured in a movie that I've ever seen because really deep stuff happens sometimes on Zoom, but it's just sort of like it's it's always shot in a weird way, and then you sort of see them sit there kind of after the call and like don't know what to do. You know, like that was really striking to me. Yeah, good point. Good and point. I thought it was um, interesting the scene where the three of them are out to eat. She's sitting in between them. She can speak Korean to her long lost love, but her husband really doesn't speak enough Korean to keep up. So it's very interesting how she was managing and interpreting what was being said and how patient her husband was being. In another movie, maybe he blows up and is screaming at her, but. They didn't have that scene. I just I just thought it was all so intelligent and tender. On my scale of 1 to 23 jujubes, I gave it 21 jujubes. I think on Letterboxd, that's like my standard. It's five five stars. Yeah. And you only like the best movies of all time get five stars. And then four is like really really good movie. So I give it I give it a 4. Where are you, Kate? Yeah, I would I would be the same place, which I think is 21 jujubes. That's funny. Before you said your number, I was going to say 20, John, but I won't quibble over one jujube. (laughs) Marge, it's uh, nice to have you on the podcast this week. Thanks. Nice to be here. And uh, Kate in Austin, Eric clicked out. He's on vacation, gave us plenty of time. So I appreciate the time all of you put into this. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. I'm John Williams. We'll drop another pod next week. Good job, guys. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. So long. Bye. So long. Thanks, Marge. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.